All right, if you have your Bibles, open God's Word with you to Revelation chapter 2. In case you're brand new uh, to our study on Sunday nights, we're working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Revelation. And uh, we've made it now to chapter 2. I had hoped to go to cover an entire uh, chapter tonight, the second chapter. Uh, But I want to make sure that we have time for the fellowship afterwards. So rather than try to to cover the entire chapter, I want to talk to you about the seven churches of Revelation, introduce that concept to you, explain the letters to the seven churches, and then focus on one of those letters, uh, the letters to the church at Ephesus. Uh, So we won't go through the whole chapter, but we will be dealing with some very important material. Now I want you to think about the concept of a church. In today's times, there are some people who don't think churches are that important. You talk to some people and they say, well, I've got my own private relationship, my own private thoughts, and uh, my own private way of worshiping. I don't need four walls and a preacher. But if we learn anything from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, one of the things we ought to learn is that God thinks that churches are important. Chapters 2 and 3 of this, this apocalypse book uh, there, there's, these two chapters are devoted to seven churches in Asia. Now, we read this previously, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, let's go to chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. In other words, John, the Apostle John, was writing this letter that we call Revelation to seven churches. He, he sent this letter. To seven churches. It was not just written to be a letter that, that we would read and say, my goodness, what happens at the end of the world? But it was a literal, a literal letter written to seven different congregations. And then look at verse 10 and verse 11, the same chapter. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he mentions these seven literal churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I'm going to put a map up, or have the guys put the map up, and you can see these seven churches uh, that are in, in south, what we would call today southwestern Turkey. Uh, in that day, it was called Anatolia. The area was called Anatolia. Uh, but these were, again, seven literal churches And we'll talk about each one in just a few minutes. Uh, Jesus dictated this letter to these churches uh, through the Apostle John. In each letter, he addresses each church as if he, Jesus, is the true shepherd overseeing each church. And it's interesting that when you read uh, the letters to all seven churches, uh, he he doesn't sugarcoat anything, uh, nor does he... uh, kind of turn an eye away from things, he, he commends them for the things that they're doing good, and then he condemns them when they've been failing. As a genuine pastor, he then calls many times in these letters the people that he's writing to to turn, to repent, to come back. Now, here's what I want you to realize before we start reading them in detail. These churches were not symbolic places. They were real churches. People attended their services. They sang songs together. They listened to messages. And Christ was intently interested on what was going on in each of those seven churches. 
He was intently interested in what was happening in each of those bodies of believers. It's an interesting thing that the same challenges and the same problems that they had in, in their church, we often have in ours. The things happening in that day often happens in our day. So even though these letters were written for the churches of the first century, they apply to our day as well. Now, why these seven? There were other churches in that day. There were certainly uh, churches that Paul had started across the known world at that time. There were certainly other churches. Why these seven? It's believed that John perhaps had a personal relationship with, with the people in each of these seven churches. That John perhaps had uh, been a pastor in at least one, the church at Ephesus, and maybe connected to, to all of them in some form or fashion. And so John probably uh, had a relationship with the leaders of the church, at least, if not being the leader of one or more of these churches. One of the things I want you to remember before we get too far in this study is to remember the number seven. Does anybody, can you remember what the number seven stands for? Completeness. The numbers in the, in the, in the book of Revelation are almost always symbolic, and seven is, is completeness. It is what we would call the divine number or God's number. There are seven churches in Asia Minor that John wrote to. These are representative churches of all the churches throughout history. Get that in your mind. They certainly are representative of churches in the first century. But they are also representative of churches in every age. Now, there are three ways. I hope you've got an outline. I hope you're going to follow along. I'll try to give you some pretty detailed notes. There are three ways to view these letters to the seven churches. I want to take a few minutes to walk through this with you before we look at the first letter to Revelation or to Ephesus. There's three ways to view these letters. First of all, you can view these letters as simply individual messages to that particular church. And certainly that's what they were. They were individual messages to the church at Ephesus, individual messages to the church at Laodicea, an individual message, individual letter, hand-delivered to the church at Philadelphia. These are certainly messages for the individual churches. Uh, we get that part. But secondly, another way to view these letters is as a message for all churches through all ages. What I mean by that, these seven letters are representative, kind of a, a cross-section, if you will, of the condition of the Christian churches throughout church history. There will always be, in some part of the world, there will always be a Smyrnan church that is experiencing persecution, for example, and being faithful in, in spite of the persecution. There will always be, regardless of whether it's uh, 2015 or 1915 or or 1415, regardless of the year, there will always be Philadelphian churches that, that have a mindset for missions. Uh, there will always be an Ephesian church that is busy, that has misplaced priorities. There will always be Laodicean churches that are neither hot nor cold, they are just lukewarm. So one of the ways to view these letters to the seven churches is to view them not only as letters for the individual congregations, but also to view them as letters to churches throughout all of history. Because these seven churches are a complete, seven, they're a complete demonstration of the types of churches that existed then and exist now. 
There's a third way to view these seven letters, and that is to view them as a prophecy of church history. Now, this is where it gets really interesting uh, if you really are into prophecy and so forth. There are those who would say that these seven letters to the seven churches really is, is a prophecy of how history is going to unfold in the church. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation give the message of Christ to seven little churches, yes, but it goes beyond that to describe the seven stages the church will go through from Pentecost to the rapture. That each church represents a stage or an age, a time period. And each of these churches represent a time period that we will progressively move through, that we will chronologically move through from, from the time of Pentecost to the time of, uh, of the rapture. David Jeremiah is one of these individuals, and I, and I, I like David Jeremiah. I believe uh, David Jeremiah is, is extremely intelligent, and he does a lot in prophecy. Uh, he's a pastor in California, written lots of books. David Jeremiah said this, and I quote, he said, The letters begin with the first century church and end with the last type of church which will be on the earth at the end of the age. In other words, in the first century church, there was the Ephesian church. And at the end of the age, there will be the Laodicean church, the one that's lukewarm. And he, and he says that basically for every age throughout church history, one of these churches represents that age. Now, I find that a little bit hard to prove, though I would like to think it's true. I find that a little bit harder to prove from Scripture. I don't see the, the scriptural support for that idea, though it is an interesting concept. Uh, and here's part of the problem. It's difficult to say with precision when one period begins and another period ends. It's difficult to say that this is the Laodicean period or this is the uh, Ephesian period, etc. Uh, in fact, I don't, I'm not going to take time to go over it with you, but, but I, I'll just give you a, one or two examples. See if these names sound familiar to you. Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, and J. Vernon McGee. Those names sound familiar to any of you folks? All right, very good. These three individuals, and there's many, many more, but these three individuals are, are men who believe that indeed each letter to the seven churches represents a church age. The Ephesus period, the Smyrna period, the Pergamum period, the Thyatira period, the Sardis period, the Philadelphia period, the Laodicean period, and it all represents a different church age. These men believe that, the problem is, when, they, when you start studying each of these men, they all suggest different dates for these periods. I'll give you one or two examples. Uh, for the Thyatira period, Tim LaHaye says uh, that the Thyatira period started at 606 A.D. and it goes through the tribulation. Hal Lindsay said that the Thyatira period started in 590 and went to A.D. 1517. J. Vernon McGee says it started at 590 and went to A.D. 1000. So it's hard to have any kind of specific dates there that you can benchmark. Philadelphia period, Tim LaHaye said it started in 1750 and goes through the tribulation. Hal Lindsay says it started in 1750 and went to 1925. J. Vernon McGee says it started at 1800 and goes through the rapture. So it... I like the concept that all seven letters represents an age that we will go through, that the church, that describes church history. It's just hard to nail down specific times uh, to that theory. So just, just throw that out there as a possibility at, at the very least. 
Now, let's talk about the organization and the components of, of each letter. All the letters follow a pattern. This is the one place on your notes where I've given you a, a blank a blank section to write some notes in. Uh, you need to finish a sentence there that I gave you. Uh, there's no fill in the blanks, but there's a blank section. All the letters follow a pattern, and here's the pattern. There's commendation. Every one of them starts out with words of praise, except for one church. Anybody know which church that is? Laodicea. Very good. But most of the seven letters start out with a word of commendation or a word of praise. And secondly, there is a word of condemnation. Except for two churches. There are two churches about which the Lord Jesus said nothing negative. Five of the seven churches, he did say something very negative about each of those five. But there's two churches about which he said nothing negative. Anybody know which churches those were? Smyrna and Philadelphia. He had just positive things to say about these churches. So, here's the, here's the organization of each letter. A pattern, commendation, condemnation. Then there's counsel, where he gives counsel about what they should do. And then there's a challenge. Now, don't lose sight of this one very important fact. It is the Lord Jesus who is examining each of these churches. It is the Lord Jesus and Him alone who is truly qualified to examine these churches. And it is the Lord Jesus and Him alone to whom they are accountable. You see, Mount Airy Baptist Church is not accountable to Keith Shorter. Mount Airy Baptist Church is accountable to the Lord Jesus. I am accountable to the Lord Jesus. You are accountable to the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting that when he looked at these churches, he saw what oftentimes people didn't see. He looked beyond the externals to the internals. Have you ever tried to find a church home? Uh, Some of you have grown up here. I understand that. And I'm glad you've grown up here. But have you ever tried to go looking for a church home and it was just a difficult thing, wasn't it? Uh, you, you go visit, you, you, you hear some things, you hear good things about that church, and you like the way it looks on the outside, you hear about the program. So you go to the church, it's like, ah, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Or you go to this church, it's like, well, the building's not much, but, but I'm going to go, and it's like, wow, I like what's happening there. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard for us to look at a church and say, man, there's something happening there. There's something good there, or there's not anything good there. It's hard for us to make accurate ex- assessment. I'm going to tell you something. The Lord Jesus makes a very accurate assessment of every church. And as he looked at these seven churches, he made an assessment. And he offered, as he made the assessment, he offered commendation, condemnation, counsel, and challenge. Now, we won't take time to dig into this much, but each message begins with a phrase, I know your deeds. Look in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. Uh, Look in verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance. And and we can take the time and and every, every, every one of them, he says something to them that he says, he says the same thing to each, all, each of them. I know. 
something about you. And the, word, the Greek word there means that I know not just because somebody has told me, but I know from personal experience with you. I know. I know you. Each message begins with, I know. Secondly, each message ends with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me show you something interesting. Uh, for example, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I thought this was a letter to the church at Ephesus. Right? And yet he ends it by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches, plural. Same thing in verse 11. Verse 11 is the letter to the church at Smyrna. And here's what he says at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I don't want to take too long on this, but it is interesting that he is either saying, this message that I have is not just for this one church, but it's for all seven churches. Or he may have been saying, this message that I have is not just for this church, it's for all churches in all of history. And that's, that's the way I lean, really. I believe he's saying this message is not just for Ephesus. This message is for all churches in all of history. That all churches need this message. So it is a message to the church, but it also is a message for churches. All right, each message ends also with a promise for those who overcome. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, here's the promise. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Look in verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And in each of the seven churches, it ends with a promise like that for those who overcome. And finally, each letter begins with some reference to Christ as he is described in chapter 1. Here's what I mean by that. If you look in chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 12 through 19. Verses 12 through 19. Look how Christ is described in this passage. I turned around to see the voice that was, that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among this, the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his, faith was, his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance." And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. It's interesting when you, when you read then the letters to the churches, every letter, are you listening? Every letter begins with a reference to something that was explained in chapter 1. For example, look in chapter 2, verse 1. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampsticks. Uh, lampstands. That's in verse, chapter 1, verse 16. Look in verse 12. Verse 12. To the angel of the church at Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That's found in chapter 1, verse 16. When he says, in his right hand are seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. So in each of these, and I'm going to ask you a question in a minute, but in each of these letters, it begins by, by describing something about Christ that was explained in chapter 1. Now you help me with this, why? Why did, did John tie this in, that in each of these letters, why did Jesus have John tie this in, that in each of these letters, it begins with, with a a piece of the description of Jesus in chapter 1. Why is that? Say that aloud. Okay, that's good. It's God's Word, not John's Word. That's good. Good ideas. In addition to these, I would add that I believe that it shows that Jesus meets our needs in many different ways. My need might be different from your need, and your need, and your need, but Jesus is the answer to all of it, isn't he? You see, each church had a different need, but Jesus was the answer to their need. And so each of these letters begins with emphasizing a different component about Jesus described in chapter 1. But it's always Jesus who is the answer to it all. So that's kind of a summary of, of the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. And now we want to come to look at the first letter, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is considered by Bible scholars to have been one of the finest and largest churches of the New Testament times. I want you to hear that again. Ephesus was probably one of the largest and finest churches in the New Testament times. And in fact, the city of Ephesus, not the church, but the city of Ephesus, by the time Paul wrote this letter, had already been in existence for about a thousand years. This was a major city. Scholars say there probably was about 350,000 people who lived in that city. Now, in today's time, that's not a, a mega city. It's a big city, but it's not a mega city. Now we have millions of people. But in that day, when you had 350,000 people living in the same area, that was a major metropolitan area. And in that major metropolitan area, the, the New York City of its day, it was built on a harbor. And that it was a trading place. It was a major trading avenue. And in, in that New York City of its day, the Apostle Paul went there to start a church. And Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than he stayed anywhere else. Anybody know how long Paul stayed in this strategic city? Three years. He spent three years. He was there longer than he was anywhere. He spent three years in Ephesus because it was such a strategic city. And listen to this, because it was such a demonic stronghold. Paul spent three years, and after Paul left that three years, he, he left Timothy in charge. Timothy became, the, he was appointed to be the pastor. And it is likely that the Apostle John followed Timothy and also served as pastor. Now, 
Have you all ever seen the, uh, the wall that we had out here before we tore the wall down? Uh, the, the pastors, the former pastors, the pictures of the former pastors of our church. Uh, we, we've, got, we've got them stored away. I'm sure we'll put them up somewhere after all this construction is done. How would you like to have this kind of wall? Here's our former pastors. Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. I would hate it to have been pastor number four, trying to, trying to follow that group, for sure. So, recognize this. This is a church that had tremendous pastoral leadership. This is a church that had the Apostle Paul as their founding pastor. And Paul stayed in that city discipling the leaders in that church for three years. And after Paul left, Timothy was there to make sure everything was going smoothly. And after that, the Apostle John, one of the men who followed Jesus, the last remaining apostle, the Apostle John, was the next pastor. Now, keep that in your mind. Understand the leadership that they had. Understand the influence that they had in their lives. Understand that this was a church that in some ways we would say was very privileged to have that kind of pastoral leadership. Church flourished. It grew. It was a dynamic place. And in fact, Jesus had some very nice things to say about it. Beginning in verse 1, he says, To the angel, or to the leader, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, Jesus is saying, your hard work and your perseverance. I know all about that. You don't have to tell me about it. I know about it. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That sounds like a good church to me. How about you? Sounds like a very good congregation. Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. It was a major trading center in the Roman Empire. The city was famous for the temple of Artemis. Some of you have been to Ephesus. You can still travel there today, the ruins, and see the ruins of Ephesus. It was a major trading center. There was a, a, a tremendous temple there to the goddess Ar- Artemis. Uh, I'm told that, the, that it was larger, the temple was larger than two football fields long. That's pretty big, isn't it? A little bit bigger than Mount Airy, isn't it? Two football fields long. Ephesus was a place that was not only had this wonderful, beautiful, but, but pagan temple on, on the hilltop there to Artemis, but it also was a place that was very dark, very demonic. Go to Acts. Go to the book of Acts. Chapter uh, 19. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 is the story of Paul in Ephesus. And, and here's the story. We're kind of picking it up in the middle of the story, but it says in verse 11, Paul, uh, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul while he was in Ephesus. 
so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. There were people there who were demon-possessed. It was common knowledge. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man, this is good, watch this. Then the man who had, who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. He tore their hide up. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Now watch 18 and 19. Many of those who believed, many of those who became Christians, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number, we don't know what that number is, but apparently a, a pretty sizable number, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Ephesus was a place that was dark and demonic. And Paul says, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to invest my life there. And for three years, he planted himself in that dark, demonic city. And the church grew, it says right there uh, uh, in verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The the church grew. The word of God grew. Uh, And when Jesus looked at this church now in Revelation, and when he writes this letter, here's what you need to know. It was about 40 years later. About 40 years had passed from the time that Paul was there starting the church till the time that Jesus writes the letter to the church at Ephesus. And when he looks at this church about 40 years later, he saw three commendable things about this church. Tell me what they are. Go back to Revelation and tell me what are the three commendable things that Jesus saw. What was the first one? You're hardworking. This is a hardworking church. They were serving church. They were a busy church. They were working for the Lord. What was the second one? Huh? All right, perseverance. They, they were separated. They persevered was the third one. They persevered in times of trouble. So up until this point, everybody watch this. Up until this point, this church gets an A+. Everything about it is positive. But that's not the whole story. You see the Lord's condemnation of this very big, growing, important, strategic church that had Paul and Timothy and John with spiritual foundation. Uh, He still had something to say to this church even, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. 
One of the reasons I decided not to do all seven churches tonight is because I thought if there's any letter we need to stay on for a while, it's this one. If there's any letter we need to look at in detail, it's this one. If we just skim the seven churches and we skim over the first one, we're going to miss perhaps the most important letter of all. When Jesus looked at this church 40 years later with an x-ray type vision, he looked beyond their activities to the attitude of their heart. And he says, you've left your first love. You're doing the right things, but these things are not motivated by love of Jesus. You see, things aren't always as they appear. In Ephesus... It appeared that this was a great church. It it appeared that this was a church on the move. It appeared that this was a church that had a great history and a great foundation. It appeared that this was a church that you could brag about. And Jesus said, look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. It's the same phrase, if you want to put this in the side note there, in that little side note column. It's the same phrase used in Matthew 5.23 where it says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother has something against you. It's the same phrase in the Greek language. It means that the relationship is not what it used to be, nor what it should be. I've got something against you, Jesus said. As he looked at this church, this busy church, in spite of religious activity, he said, I want you to know something. I see something others don't see. I know something perhaps others don't know. I look beyond the externals of your activity to the attitude of your heart. And when I look at the attitude of your heart, there is something disturbing there. You have left your first love. Let me describe to you what first love is. First love is the the devotion that we have to Jesus Christ when we first come to know Him. You might want to write that down in that little column there. First love is the, is the devotion that we have to Jesus Christ when we first come to know Him. Help me teach the lesson tonight. Describe for me the devotion that you have for Jesus Christ when you first come to know Him. You want to tell anybody? Absolutely. Huh? There's no doubt. Totally sold out. Excitement, absolutely. Want to learn more about him? Say that again. Yeah. <laughs> you probably even look happy about it. Uh, not afraid of anything, all consuming. Huh? Absolutely. I want to give you just a personal confession. Personal, as I looked at this, and maybe God will use this differently in your life. Somebody said, you want to tell, I think you were the first one that said, uh, you want to tell people about Him. I've told this story years ago, but, but let me tell it again. Some of you are new, you, you don't know this story. But when I first got saved, I, I was 11 years old when I got saved. I remember very distinctly, we had a little store in our community, in our neighborhood, Campbell's, Campbell's Store. 
And Campbell's store was nothing more than a house that they had converted, a small little house that they had converted into a little community store. And you went there to get, you know, just, just snacks and just little stuff, just a little community store. I remember when I first got saved, Tooney Cash was preaching at our little church. And I took, remember cassette tape players? I took a cassette tape player. Now, I'm 11 years old, and I just got saved. But when I heard him preach, I thought other people need to hear what he's saying. I was 11 years old. I didn't know how to tell him what he was saying. So I took a cassette tape player, and I put it up on our little pulpit there in the church. And I told him, uh, you know, when, when you get up to preach, I was just 11. I was like, when you get up to preach, this is the evangelist. When you get up to preach, would you turn this on for me? And so he did. And, and I recorded, I recorded every service. And here, here's what I did. I took that little tape recorder and I carried it to Campbell's store. I'm 11 years old and I set it on the counter and I said, man, would you listen to what this preacher has to say? And I hit play. And I stood there and let her listen to that message. That's all I knew to do. That's all I knew to do, but I knew I had to tell somebody. I had found something in Jesus that I wanted others to find. And I didn't know how to go through faith, or or I didn't know how to go even through the Roman road. I didn't know how to explain what I had found. I just knew I'd found it. And I want somebody else to find it. And so I would go every day. And I put that tape recorder up there. She probably thought, oh, here he comes again. And I'd turn on that tape recorder. And I'd play the preacher for. When I was studying this, I thought, when was the last time I had that kind of concern? When was the last time I was that motivated? Tell somebody about Jesus. Those words ringing in my ear, you have left your first love. Maybe you can relate to something like that as well. He said basically, look, look how he describes it. He says, verse 4, you have forsaken your first love and he says in verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Somewhere along the line, the church at Ephesus allowed the warmth and the excitement of their love for God to become lifeless. God never meant, listen church, God never meant for duty to replace love. God never intended for us to get to the point where we say, I have to do this. God never intended for us to have that kind of relationship with Him. The spiritual life of the church had become sterile. They were doing things out of duty rather than out of devotion. They were outwardly committed to the things of God, but they had lost their passion for God. They went through all the motions, but it lacked lacked life. They lost the wonder of their salvation. Maybe I could put it to you this way. They got saved and they got over it. They got over it. 
And so, when you're first saved, you have enthusiasm, but you don't have knowledge. That was me when I was 11. When you're first saved, you have enthusiasm, but you don't have knowledge. But as time passes, if we're not careful, we'll have knowledge with no enthusiasm. Maybe that describes you. This letter to Jesus reminds us that there is a work to be done. There is a faith to be fought for. But there is a love we have to maintain. If we're going to be effective. So pastor, I understand what you're saying. But is it really that big of a deal? Look look what Jesus said in verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus said, first of all, this is something you need to repent of. This is not just something you should take lightly. This is something that you need to repent of. This is something that he takes very, very seriously. You need to remember, to look back and remember, and then you need to repent. And he says, and if you don't, If you don't, then I'll take action. Well, look at the Lord's counsel to the church. We'll quickly go through this. He gives three very specific instructions in verse 5. He says, first of all, you regain your love by remembering. Remembering what, church? Tell me, remembering what? Huh? Remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember what you used to do. Remember how it used to be. Go back and think about how it used to be. Tell me why that would be beneficial to you. Why would it be beneficial for you to take some time to remember what it used to be like with Jesus? Yes. Yes. When you take the time to remember, it will stimulate you to want to return. You want to get back to what you had. You want to go back to where you were. It also will do this for you. It'll help you, it'll help you see the place that you fell, the place where you left the Lord Jesus, the place that you need to go back and maybe address some issues. Remember the height from which you have fallen. What caused you to fall? What caused you to lose the enthusiasm? What took away your love for some it might be when you became angry with someone and you failed to resolve that anger and he says remember remember the height from which you have fallen and then repent Uh, for others it may be that you got so busy that felt like you didn't have time to spend time with the Lord on a daily basis and you neglect that daily devotion to Jesus and he says remember remember the height from which you have fallen there was a day when you were in the word there was a day when you dug into the word remember the height from which you have fallen maybe it was a tragedy that happened in your life and you slowly began to drift away from God the tragedy so rocked your world that it shook the very foundation of your life and sometimes the tragedy can move us away from our love for Jesus Maybe it's that you started making more money and, and that became more important to you than the Lord. He says, just remember, just remember. Think about it and go back and remember. Then he says, and repent. Is repent, answer this question for me. Is repent a positive word or a negative word? It's an intriguing question. Talk to one another and try to figure that out. Is it a positive word when he says repent? It means turn away from sin and turn back to Him. Is, is this a positive word or a negative word? Talk to one another and figure that out. Please. 
All right. If you're involved in sin, and the Lord Jesus says you need to repent, you're involved in sin, you need to repent, is that a positive word or a negative word? Why is it positive? Yes. You're turning in the right direction. You're turning away from the sin, and you're turning to the Savior, right? You're turning away from that that has pulled you away from that first love, and you're turning back to that first love. I want to tell you something. We think sometimes of repentance as very negative. It is one of the most positive words in the Bible. God is saying, I want you back. I can't think of anything more positive than that. I want you back. I don't want you involved in this anymore. I don't want you to give in to this anymore. I don't want this to pull you away from me anymore. I want you back. That is a very positive message. Repent. Turn back. You gain your first love by remembering. You regain your first love by repenting. You regain your first love by repeating. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. And then he says, and do the things... You did it first. What, what did you do at first? Well, at first, you used to get up early to read your Bible when you first got saved. When you first got saved, you used to pray because you needed it and you wanted it. Uh, you, when you first got saved, you praised God from your heart. When you first got saved, you had a relationship with Jesus Christ. You did things out of devotion, not out of duty. And he says, I want you to remember, I want you to repent, and I want you to repeat. Do what you used to do. And he closes with this challenge in verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, not just to this church, Ephesus, but all the churches and all of history. To him who overcomes, there, sometimes you've got to overcome in life. Sometimes there will be those days when you get away from your first love. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise. Of God. Those who have ears refers to those who are in tune with what God is saying. Those who have ears are those who are not who are not dull of hearing, but we are in tune to what God is saying. There's more that we could talk about here, but I want to close by asking you to bow your heads for a moment. Before we get up and leave, before we go to the fellowship, I want to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. Listen, let me just say two or three sentences to you. Uh, The church at Ephesus was a careless church. They carelessly let other things become more important than Jesus. When Paul first started the church, the people's highest priority was Jesus. There's no doubt about that. Highest priority was Jesus. But as time went on, they started to backslide. In the busyness of our lives, we can allow our love relationship for Jesus to become weak. Church at Ephesus has an important message for the church at Mount Airy. And the message is this. The Lord Jesus wants to be the priority in your life. Not a priority, not part of your life, not part of your schedule. The Lord Jesus wants to be the priority in your life.
Would you breathe a prayer tonight? Lord, help me to listen to what the Spirit is saying. Help me to live like an overcomer. Help me to love you like I did at first. I pray, dear God, for that to be a reality. I pray, dear God, that you begin to do a work at Mount Airy so that it be evident that Jesus is the priority in our life. And I pray that in His name. Amen.